0: Welcome, everybody. We'll begin with a word of prayer, as our custom is. Father in heaven, we do thank you as we look at each of these books of the Bible for the faithfulness of the men that you worked through to compose your word and to preserve it for us. We are especially thankful for you preserving this word and preserving the wonderful truths that you have for us and making sure that the men who wrote the words of scripture wrote exactly what you wanted them to write. We appreciate that. We ask that you would help us to dig into these precious truths and to understand them better. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we're going to be looking at Mark the shortest of the gospels. And I've entitled this Jesus Christ, the servant of God, because that's what Mark emphasizes, the fact that Jesus is the servant of God, that he is a faithful servant. I noticed when, uh, after I sent the handout to Christy, that the date I had on there was May 19th which was yesterday's date not today's date so (laughs) I don't know if that's been corrected or not but today is the 20th Here are here's what we know about Mark he was an associate of Peter Peter the apostle he was once a missionary companion of Paul at one time he was the son of of one Mary and there are several Marys In the New Testament Maybe I'll In in one of these lessons Maybe I'll talk about that Who who the Marys Marys were In the the New Testament He was um, a relative Of Barnabas Either a nephew or a cousin One of the two But he was related to Barnabas And later on He became the subject of dispute Between Paul and Barnabas Um Paul felt that he wasn't, that Mark wasn't doing his job and he wanted to, didn't want him to continue to accompany them on their missionary journeys. He was later reconciled to Paul though. We we know that from scripture. He was perhaps the person whose home was the upper room. That's a possibility. And possibly he was well-to-do. He owned a big home apparently. And his cousin owned land. So apparently he was well-to-do. He may have been the unclad lad who fled the garden. In, in the book of Mark, we read about uh, uh, a man who, a young man who's, who fled the garden and his uh, clothes were left behind. It, Mark may have been that individual. The flight that the... the We begin with the facts of the Book of Mark. Church historians from as early as AD 130 have attributed primary authorship of the Gospel of Mark to John Mark, the relative of Barnabas and the traveling companion to the Apostles Paul and later Peter. Scholars have concluded that Mark received most of his information from Peter. So in a way you could say it's the Gospel of Peter, it's the information that he transferred to, to Mark it's possible that mark was the earliest of the gospels to be written that is the the thinking of of modern testament scholars that was not the thinking of the of the early church but modern scholars tend to think that that mark was the earliest to be written and i'll i'll talk more about that after we get go through all of the the four gospels Uh, then i'll talk about the harmony of the gospels and the the various questions about the dating of the the Gospels. So it's possible that he he was the earliest of the Gospels to be written uh, sometime between AD 60 and 68. Scripture refers to Mark as John Mark. John was his Hebrew name. The Hebrew is uh, actually Yochanan, meaning Yahweh is gracious Mark was his Latin name, the Latin Marcus, uh, which may be derived from an ancient word meaning to harvest, or maybe related to, the, to Mars, the god of war, but those are the possibilities. So in English, we say John, but the Hebrew is actually Yochanan. Whenever a name is transferred from one language to another, it tends to get changed a little. You know, we say John in English, and in Spanish, they say Juan and uh, in French, they say Jean because in French, the letter J has the Z-H sound. And in in German, they say Johann. and in uh, Italian, they say Giovanni. <laughs> so names get changed around when they get transferred from one language to another. Evidence of authorship by Mark, of course, there's the internal evidence, the evidence found inside the book. Uh, the writer of the Gospel of Mark was had familiarity with the geography of the land and of Jerusalem. Um, he knew Aramaic, the common language of the day. And he understood Jewish customs and institutions. So those are all things that argue in favor that it was actually written by by Mark in the first century. Uh, more internal evidence. Uh, the account is vivid and detailed, r- revealing contact with Jesus' inner circle, Peter and James and John. How would he know uh, what happened on the, on the Mount of Transfiguration if he didn't have close contact with, with Peter? How, how would he know what was said and what was done? Uh, he used Peter's words and deeds, he described those quite. Uh, explicitly he he alone added and peter in the resurrection account the other the other um, gospel writers talk about uh, the disciples but he says the disciples and peter so he makes sure that you you know that peter was there so he's a close associate of peter There's a striking similarity between Mark's broad outline and Peter's sermon in Acts 10, 34 through 43. I'll talk about that later and show you those those, uh, close parallels between Mark, the outline of of the gospel of Mark and, and Peter's sermon in Acts 10. External evidence, evidence found outside the book. The earliest manuscripts have his name on them. And one of the earliest church fathers, Papias, attributed this book, this gospel to to Mark. Other church fathers unanimously agreed that Mark was the author. Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Justin Martyr, Tatian, Tertullian, Origen, Jerome, Eusebius. I'll mention uh, Tatian again, when I get to the um, uh, harmony of the gospels, because um, Tatian was uh, the person who wrote one of the earliest harmonies of the gospels the landmarks the L and flight the gospel of Mark focuses on Christ as a servant as I, I mentioned uh, in my prayer and also in the title of the on this study the two themes of this verse service and sacrifice are unpacked throughout the book mark is full of action presenting Jesus as the faithful Worker and servant of the Lord, effectively going about and accomplishing his work. So, wh- when we compare Mark to the other Gospels, it, it's, it's a very fast moving book, uh, fast paced book. Mark's purpose was simply to announce the words and works of Jesus Christ. Mark is the briefest of all of the Gospels, suiting the simple, straightforward approach favored by its intended audience, the Romans. It's thought that Mark was composing his book for a Roman audience. Uh, Here's some of the evidence that that it was written to the Romans. There are lots of Latinisms in the book modios means bushel or basket, kensos means census, centurion means centurion. So there are lots of, of Latin words in in the book words of latin origin the servant theme which fits the roman culture since about half of its people were slaves it took lots of slaves to keep the the roman empire functioning about half of the people were slaves so this this idea of a servant resonated with many of the people in the roman empire Uh, explaining jewish customs to his non-jewish audience He wouldn't have to explain jewish customs to a jewish audience but he would have to explain many of these customs to a a non-jewish audience and he he does that in in the gospel of mark there are fewer old testament references in in the gospel of mark only 63 compared to 128 in matthew and between 90 and 100 in luke so since he was writing to a, a gentile audience uh, the the old testament references were less of lesser importance than they were in, in matthew and luke and there's also the the roman tone of, of this gospel it has a, a roman tone it's it's uh, compo- it makes use of the, this uh, model of the greco-roman biography the fact that mark was probably in rome with peter I mentioned that he was a, an associate of Peter, so he's probably there with Peter in, in Rome. Uh, the long discourses found in Matthew are missing in Mark. Romans were not interested in what a servant taught, but what he wrought, in other words, what he did, what his actions were. Mark, uh, I, so there's this, this emphasis on doing, on, on action. Mark has 18 miracles. So he records a lot of miracles in his book, but there are only four parables and only one major discourse in the book of Mark. And that would be the Olivet Discourse. So all of the the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, have the Olivet Discourse in them. Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. They all give us that vitally important eschatology But as you can see, Mark is is a book, gospel of doing, of action, action, activity. The itinerary in flight, the outline of the book, the first part of the book is the service of the servant, uh, 1-1 through 826. The next part is the sacrifice of the servant, 827 through 1547. Talking about his suffering and his death and burial. And then the last part of the book is the sovereignty of the servant. His sovereignty, his power in rising from the dead. Now you will notice that in the last part of the book, the sovereignty of the servant, I it's in chapter 16, but I only go through verse uh, through verse eight, verses one through eight. Why is that? Well, I'll talk more about the ending of the book of Mark later on. Because there are, in our Bibles, as they've come down to us, we we have uh, verses 9 through 20. So, why don't I include them? Well, I'll tell you about that later. Gospels, the four Gospels, the four proclamations of the Evangelion, the the good news, they serve less as biographies and more as testimonials. the most astonishing historical event ever god became flesh and walked among us in the person of the messiah jesus christ mark was written for a practical and on point gentile audience the romans mark portrayed jesus as god's obedient servant focusing on what he did the key word in this book is immediately a word that sets the book's intense pace and focus an activity and movement you find that word immediately over and over again in gospel of mark this happened and then immediately this happened and then immediately this happened so it, it keeps moving us right along the history uh, i've talked about this before when, when we left malachi the, the persian empire ruled the world when the new testament opens we see a, a new leading power in Europe and the Middle East, the Roman Empire. Augustus Caesar was the Roman Emperor from 27 BC through AD 14. So he was the the Roman Emperor at the time when Christ was performing his ministry. Tiberius Caesar was the Roman Emperor from AD 14 to 37. No, I'm I'm sorry, I misstated that. So Caesar was uh, the, uh, the emperor when, when, when Jesus was still a, a young man, Tiberius Caesar was the Roman emperor during the ministry of Christ at the time that he was performing his ministry in the time he was crucified and resurrected. Pontius Pilate was the Roman procurator of Judea from AD 26 through 36. So he was Rome's man on the scene at that time and that's why uh, Christ appeared before him what well, before his death he was tried before Pilate so Tiberius Caesar was the, the Roman Emperor at the time of the crucifixion and Pontius Pilate was the sub ruler of that area and remember uh, one of the sons of Herod the Great Herod Antipas was the the ruler up north in Galilee, the Romans put a descendant of the Edomites on the of Judea, Herod the Great, who built up Zerubbabel's temple into a majestic complex. But he was also a cruel, paranoid ruler, we see that in in, in the Gospel of Matthew when he slaughtered the influence trying to get at the Messiah. But his son Herod Antipas succeeded him in Jesus' day, reigning over the regions of Galilee and Perea. So that is why. Jesus appeared both before Pilate and before Herod Antipas in his trials. Uh, Travel tips, things we can learn from the book. There are many things, of course, that we can learn from all of the Gospels, but these are just some things that I focused on in the book of, of Mark. When we face various crises in our lives, we must not forget how God has cared for us in the past. When the disciples were discussing their lack of food, it reveals how human they were. Jesus had twice multiplied the loaves to feed thousands of people. He had delivered the disciples from the storm. How quickly for, we forget God's blessings in our lives. And so often <clears throat> we find that to be true that as um a new trial comes on the scene. We, we start wondering, well, how am I gonna get through this? You know, what's, what's God gonna do for me now? And we tend to forget all of the things that he's done for us in the past. In a world that is permeated with many religious and philosophical messages, boy, isn't that the truth? We now have uh, so many more ways to prof- uh, uh, propagate those messages, you know, through the the internet and Facebook and so on, all of these different ideas, religious, and philosophical. We must discern truth from error by listening carefully to the words of Jesus Christ. Mark's account of the Transfiguration encourages us to listen to Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate. Jesus was indeed a great teacher. However, he is also God's beloved son. To listen to Jesus is to listen to God. Jesus wants you to develop a forgiving heart. He said that when you're praying, if you remember that <clears throat> then you're holding something against someone, forgive that person in your heart. Just forgive. We all need forgiveness. Don't withhold from others what God freely gave you. Let's talk now about the, the purposes of Mark. Certain features of Mark's gospel are especially relevant to an investigation into its purpose. Its focus on the activity of Jesus, especially his working of miracles. I've mentioned that several times. that focuses on activity, on what he did, and the miraculous works that he performed. Its interest in the passion of Christ, that's the other important aspect of book of mark and of course uh, i assume that you all know that by the passion of of jesus we're talking about the his suffering his death his burial it's repeated correlation of jesus predicted sufferings and the cost of discipleship mark brings out that uh, aspect of, of the gospel message several times that yes jesus did suffer he suffered incredibly and we as his followers may be called upon to suffer from time to time. So we should never think that uh, by becoming a Christian that entitles us to to live our best lives now. Two general concerns emerge from these characteristics that I've just mentioned. One is Christology, uh, the nature of, of Christ and who he was and discipleship, those two things. Mark presents a balanced Christology in which Jesus' miracle-working power, focused in the first part of the book, uh, chapter 1 up through uh, 826, is set beside his suffering and death. That's the focus of the latter part of the book, 827 through 16.8. So we, we see those two aspects of Christology that Christ is, is God, he's sovereign, he's powerful, but he suffered on our behalf. The one who is identified as the son of God in the opening verse of the gospel is confessed to be the son of God by the Roman centurion as Jesus dies, humiliated in agony on the cross. So the, the two declarations of the son of God are, are sort of like bookends or the... Or the gospel of mark so in the beginning we, he's identified as jesus is identified as the son of god and then at the latter part of the book the, the roman centurion who is present at his crucifixion comes to the realization that this is the son of god crucifixion was reserved for criminals and slaves and it had all of the connotations of a modern electric chair or gas chamber so normally you wouldn't think of Oh, this guy got to go to the cross. No, that's, it's not a privilege. It's not uh, something glamorous. It's, it's something that's shameful. It was considered shameful in the ancient world to be crucified. Mark writes when the purpose of counteracting the shame of the manner in which Jesus died. So he was telling his Roman audience that yes, this man did die a shameful death, but look at all of the things that he did this was not just a common criminal. This was not just a a slave that can be cast aside. One of one of the things that that Mark wanted to do was he, to explain to his audience how it was that the Jewish people, many of the Jewish people anyway, rejected him as as the promised Messiah. So his Roman audience would be wondering, well, why should we accept Jesus as this wonderful person if if his own people didn't so mark was telling the story to show them that there was nothing shameful about dying on the cross and even though many rejected him you should accept him you should receive him this counteracting takes the form of stressing his power to work in to work miracles to cast out demons to teach astonishingly Remember the statement in the Gospels about nobody ever taught like this guy, like this man. Uh, His power to vanquish opponents in debate. Many times that his opponents thought they had him trapped, they thought they had him outwitted, but to no avail. His power to attract crowds, to predict the future, including his own fate, what would happen to him, and the power to rise from the dead, most importantly, Certainly most importantly for us as his followers. As an apology, then, Mark's gospel is designed to convert non-Christians, despite the shame of the cross. Mark wants his readers to understand that Jesus is the Son of God, but especially the suffering Son of God. Moreover, believers are to be followers of Jesus. Mark also shows that Christians must walk the same road as Jesus, the way of humility, of suffering, and even, should it be necessary, death. Mark wants to impress on his readers the famous words of the Lord. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Mark thus wants to help his readers understand who Jesus is and what real discipleship involves. Two other more general purposes that were probably at work in the production of Mark, historical interest and evangelism. In addition to encouraging certain beliefs and actions in his Christian readers, Mark was providing them with a record of Jesus deeds and words this was becoming a great need in Mark's day as the original eyewitnesses such as Peter were beginning to pass from the scene so at the beginning of the the Christian movement people were excited because they were expecting the soon return of Jesus Christ and as the years and decades went by they began to realize that it might be a while before Christ returned for his church. And so it became more obvious, more apparent at that point that they needed to record these actions and deeds and words of Christ. Well, it's unlikely that Mark was written for non-Christians directly. The focus in the gospel on Jesus' actions the similarity between the gospel structure and the early Christian evangelistic preaching and Mark's announced intention to write a book about the gospel. All of this suggests that Mark wanted to arm his Christian readers with a knowledge of the good news of salvation. So he wanted to equip Christians that he wrote to so that they could in turn proclaim this wonderful message to the world. And speaking of the early christian evangelistic preaching uh, i'll talk uh, more about the interesting parallels between the gospel of mark and the preaching of peter once again remember that mark is an associate of peter so he took the the model for his his gospel from the preaching of peter i'll show you that later on Next, I want to deal with some, some questions that arise from various verses or passages that we find in the Gospel of Mark. And the first one question that might arise is, why is there no genealogy in Mark? Both Matthew and Luke give an ancestry of Jesus. However, Mark provides no genealogy whatsoever. Why the omission? Why, why doesn't Mark give us a genealogy? Mark presents christ as a servant and servants need no genealogy The roman audience to whom mark directed his gospel was not interested in where a servant came from but in what he could do So unlike mark's Roman audience Matthew's jewish audience looked for the messiah the king Thus matthew traces jesus back to his jewish roots as the son of david the king So a Jewish audience would want to know that, that that Jesus traced his lineage back to David. That was not particularly important or not seen as particularly important to a a Gentile audience. Likewise, Luke presents Christ as the perfect man. Hence, Christ's ancestry is traced back to the first man, Adam. So that's one of the differences between Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy. Matthew goes back to to Abraham. Uh, Luke goes back all the way to Adam, the first man. John, on the other hand, he he doesn't present a a genealogy and ancestor either. John, on the other hand, presents Christ as the son of God. So therefore he traces Christ back to his eternal source with the father. So he he doesn't pay much attention to Christ's human lineage because he's tracing Christ back to, to the Father. Uh, another question that might arise, and I, I love uh, answering, dealing with, these, with this type of thing, because it's, a, it's an important aspect of apologetics. When people claim that the Bible is filled with errors and contradictions and discrepancies, And when we examine them more closely, we find that that is not the case at all. Was Jesus wrong when he said that at the time David ate the consecrated bread? If you remember the the context for this, Jesus and his disciples are going through the fields on the Sabbath and his friends are plucking heads of grain and eating them. And uh, so at that time, Jesus mentions about, about David eating the consecrated bread, but at the time, um, Jesus seems to say in this passage that Abiathar was the high priest. But if you look at one Samuel twenty-one one through six, which describes this incident about David eating consecrated bread, it says that the high priest at that time was Ahimelech. So was Jesus wrong? Did he get to a mistake? Did he? Did he not remember correctly? First Samuel is correct in stating that the high priest was Ahimelech. On the other hand, Jesus was not wrong. When we take a closer look at Christ's words, we notice that he used the phrase in the days of Leviathan," which does not necessarily mean that Abiathar was high priest at the time David ate the bread. Jesus didn't say that. He said it happened in the days of Leviathan. He doesn't say that Abiathar was the high priest at that time. After David met Ahimelech and ate the bread, King Saul had killed. Ahimelech killed. Abiathar escaped and went to David and later took the place of the high priest. So even though Abiathar was made high priest after David ate the bread, it is still correct to speak in this manner. It was in the days of Abiathar. So Abiathar was alive, obviously, at that time. So it was in the days of Abiathar. Jesus is not saying that Abiathar was the high priest at the time that David ate the bread. So after all, as I pointed out, Abiathar was alive when David did this. And soon following, he became the high priest after his father's death. Thus it was during the time of Abiathar, but not during his tenure in office when David ate the bread. Why no mighty works? The Bible describes Jesus as God. You're all familiar with John 1. 1 in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. Who has with the Father all authority in heaven on earth, and on earth. However, on the occasion in his hometown, the hometown of Jesus, in Mark 6, 5, Jesus could do no mighty work there. Well, why couldn't he? If he is all-powerful, if he is all powerful, he's God, why, why could he do no mighty work there? Why does, why does Mark say that? Jesus is almighty as God, but not almighty as man. As the God-man, Jesus has both a divine nature and a human nature. What he can do in one nature, he cannot necessarily do in the other. For example, as God, Jesus never got tired referred to, to Psalm 1214 which talks about he neither slumbers nor sleeps. but as man he did get tired. and I referenced John 4:6 where uh, Jesus uh, sat down at the well. remember the, this incident of the woman at the well? It, it talk, talks about how Jesus was, was tired. As a man he did get tired just because Jesus possessed all power does not mean that he always chose to exercise it. The could not in Mark 6, 5 is moral, not actual. That is, he chose not to perform miracles because of their unbelief. So it wasn't because he didn't have access to power to perform miracles. It was because of their unbelief. Jesus was not an entertainer nor did he cast pearls before swine he didn't perform miracles just to wow people so the necessity here is moral not metaphysical he had the ability to, to do miracles there and in fact he did some it, it tells us in that context that he did heal some people so he did perform some miracles but he refused to do more miracles because he deemed it was a wasted effort it was because of their unbelief So that is the explanation of why he was not able to perform mighty miracles there. He chose not to. The rich young ruler, wasn't Jesus good? The rich young ruler, chapter 10, called Jesus good teacher. And Jesus rebuked him saying, why do you call me good? No one is good, but one, that is God. Yet on other occasions, Jesus not only claimed to be God elsewhere in mark and and also in in john but he accepted the the claim of others that he was god so not only did he say that he was god he accepted it when others said that he was god and the reference here to john 20 is uh, when thomas came to jesus after his after his resurrection and said my lord and my god so Jesus didn't rebuke him. Jesus just said, oh, wait, not so fast. Now, I'm not really God. No, he, he was God. And he accepted it when other people recognized that he was God. So why did Jesus appear to deny that he was God to the young ruler? Jesus did not deny that he was God to the young ruler. He simply asked him to examine the implications of what he was saying. In effect, Jesus was saying to him, do you realize what you are saying when you call me good? Are you saying I am God? That was what Jesus was doing. He was making the the young ruler think about that. The young man did not realize the implications of what he was saying. Thus, Jesus was forcing him to a very uncomfortable dilemma. Either Jesus was good and God, or else he was bad and man. Good God or a bad man But not merely a good man Those are the real alternatives With regard to Christ Those are The alternatives that we had to come to grips with And they're really the Alternatives that That anyone needs to come to grips with When you're presented with the gospel message For no good man would claim to be God when he was not. So if Jesus wasn't really God, we we can't say that he was a good man because he claimed that he was God. The liberal Christ, who is only a good moral teacher but not God, is a figment of human imagination. You you may have heard the, the expression with regard to evangelism, that we have to decide who was Jesus. Lord, liar, or lunatic, because uh, you can't really just dismiss him and then say, "Well, he's just a good teacher," because he claimed to be God. Was Jesus ignorant of the second coming? The Bible teaches that Jesus is God, of course. I've heard of that earlier, and that He knows all things. Read about that in John and, and Colossians. On the other hand, he increased in wisdom. We read that in Luke as, as he grew up. He increased in wisdom, and sometimes he did not seem to to know certain things. The reference in John eleven is to uh, the time when Lazarus died, and remember when Jesus finally came to the scene, he asked the question, "Where? show me where they laid him. And it seems that he was not just playing games, he was not just pretending to not know, he really didn't know. So how can this be? Indeed, he denied knowing the time of his own second coming in Mark thirteen thirty-two, saying, But of that day and hour no one knows, neither the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father we must distinguish between what jesus knew as god everything obviously he's one of his attributes is that he's omniscient and what he knew as man as god jesus was omniscient he was all-knowing but as man he was limited in his knowledge here's a little chart uh, showing the contrast between jesus as god and jesus as man as God, He is unlimited in knowledge. There are no limits to His knowledge. As man, He's limited in knowledge. I mean, there's only so much information that uh, the human brain, the human brain, is capable of handling. And the human brain couldn't have all knowledge. And as a man, Jesus is limited in knowledge. And Jesus, as God, there's no growth in knowledge, uh, contrary to what. Uh, some modern-day theologians seem to think uh, god is not learning god already there's something that god needs to learn god knows everything so he doesn't need to get educated about anything but as a man th- there was growth in knowledge jesus as god knew the time of his coming but as a man he did not know the time of his coming so i hope that uh, helps you to understand that and to get your head around these these differences Jesus was a God man so it's uh, some of the issues the questions that are raised by these two natures that Jesus possessed uh, I mentioned before that um, that I only go up through Luke 16 eight because uh, verses 9 through 20 of Luke 16 don't seem to be part of the original Gospel of Mark. And some of the reasons for believing this, some of the reasons that we would exclude verses 9 through 20, uh, the most important Alexandrian manuscripts do not have the passage. And uh, I apologize if you don't if you're not familiar with what I mean by Alexandrian manuscripts, um, I gave a, a three part uh, study a while back on uh, textual criticism. The Alexandrian manuscripts that I'm referring to were not known at the time that the King James Bible was translated in, in 1611. So they did include. Nine, verses nine through 20 of Mark 16. And because of that, many uh, modern translations still retain those verses, even though in, in, in many of them, you'll see that they either put they either put brackets around them, around those verses, or they, they have it set off in a different kind of type and, and some, they indicated in a footnote, or in some way they, they show you that, that the earliest manuscripts did not include those verses. And, and some of the manuscripts that, that do not contain the passage, that do contain the passage, I'm sorry. Some of the manuscripts that do include the passage, they mark it up. They show us, well, this is different. It, it, we don't think that this was part of the original. And some manuscripts have an alternative shorter ending or combine this with the longer ending. So not all manuscripts have that same ending. Some of them have a different shorter ending. And some of them combine the ending that we know about to to another with another shorter ending. So there's good reason to believe that that the earliest manuscripts did not have that ending. Some other evidence for the exclusion of verses nine through twenty. One manuscript adds manuscript adds an entire paragraph to the longer ending between verses fourteen and fifteen. So, as I said before, not not all of the manuscripts that have the ending have the same ending. One of the manuscripts has an additional paragraph in addition to what we know about. Verse 12 says that Jesus appeared in a different form. Well, that doesn't seem to jive with what the other gospels say about Jesus appearing after the resurrection. And he appeared in a different form. Um, all of the gospel writers and in, in the uh, epistles of Paul emphasize that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. He wasn't just a, a an ethereal ghost-like image. He was he, he rose bodily. And verse twelve of this longer ending of, of Mark doesn't seem to jive with that. Um, Verse 14 says that Jesus appeared to 11 disciples and that he reproached them. Well, we don't read about that in any of the other gospel accounts, that he reproached them when he appeared to them. And notice that it it says that Jesus appeared to 11 disciples. Well, if you remember the accounts of the post-resurrection appearances, remember that when Christ first appeared to the apostles, Thomas wasn't there. So there are only 10 present, not 11, as this verse 14 of Mark 16 says. So that also doesn't seem to jive with what we know from the gospels accounts of Christ's post-resurrection appearances. And verse, verses 17 and 18 seem to promise the signs given here to all believers. These are the, the verses that Talk about drinking poisonous liquids And handling poisonous snakes We know of the Incident in the book of Acts Where Paul is shipwrecked On the island of Malta He's bitten by a poisonous snake And he shakes it off into the fire But verses 17 and 18 Seem to imply that all believers Can just expect that if they drink poison Or they are bitten by a poisonous snake uh, That it won't hurt them Well, that doesn't jive either with what, uh, what we know about Scripture and about church history. Um, Many of the the most aberrant practices of of churches today Are derived from these verses, you know, there are there are churches, uh, particularly in the southern United States that do do this, they regularly drink poisonous. They, you know, they drink strychnine or arsenic. And, um, they handle poisonous snakes because they think that, you know, well, this is what we're promised in, in Mark chapter 16. So that's what they do. Well, this is another reason to not think that this is a legitimate part of the gospel of Mark. Finally, let's look at some of the contributions of the gospel of Mark. If as many New Testament scholars today believe, Mark was the first gospel to be written. That seems to be the the general thinking of of most New Testament scholars today. His gospel is historical. He was the first to set forth an account of the ministry of Jesus in this particular modification of the Greco-Roman Biography genre A genre is a type of literature And so there was this Greco-Roman biography and Mark seems to use that genre in general to, to organize his His record of the, the ministry of Christ Mark so Mark according to this idea would be the, the creator of the gospel in its literary form an interweaving of biographical and charismatic themes that perfectly conveys the sense of meaning of that unique figure in human history, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God. Uh, The word charismatic, um, it comes from the the Greek word kerygma, which simply means the, the preaching or proclaiming. So in other words, the gospel not only tells us the story of Jesus' ministry of his life and ministry, but it also preaches, it proclaims the the meaning, the significance of these events that it describes. So a gospel, which may have been first started by Mark, is the interweaving of these two things, the, the biography telling the story of Jesus with proclaiming, with preaching the message of the good news. So this person that it's describing, Jesus of Nazareth, is a unique individual in in human history. And so it's not only telling us a story, it's telling us what he did for us on our behalf. By reminding Christians that their salvation depends on the death and resurrection of Christ, Mark has inextricably tied Christian faith to the reality of Christian events. So the story of Jesus and what he did. It isn't just some nebulous once upon a time fairy tale. It's something that's tied to specific historical events and a specific time and specific place. The sequence of Mark's Gospels uh, follows the same sequence revealed in the early church's preaching. Note the parallels between the preaching of Peter in Acts chapter 10 and the structure of Mark. I mentioned this earlier, how Mark's gospel follows this outline that Peter gave us in his preaching in Acts chapter 10. So here's a a chart that I put together of parallels between Acts chapter 10 and the gospel of Mark. So Peter starts off talking about the good news. Mark says, the beginning of the good news. Uh, Then Jesus talks about God appointed Jesus of Nazareth, with the Holy Spirit. And Mark tells us that the coming of the Spirit on Jesus. So they're both talking about how the Holy Spirit was instrumental in, in empowering Jesus to do what he did. Peter talks about beginning in Galilee. This ministry of Christ began in Galilee. And in the early part of his gospel, Mark tells us about Jesus' Galilean ministry Peter said he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. Mark tells us that Jesus' ministry focuses on healings and exorcism, casting out demons. Peter says we are witnesses of everything he did in Jerusalem. And Mark goes on to tell us about the ministry of Jesus in Jerusalem. Next, Peter says they killed him by hanging him on a cross. And then Mark in chapter 15 focuses on the death of Christ. And Peter tells us finally that God raised him from the dead on the third day. And of course, when we get to the final chapter of Luke, he has risen, he is not here. So you can see how Mark closely follows that outline provided to him by Peter with whom he was closely associated. So other contributions of Mark, the structure of Mark helps the readers of the gospel understand the basic salvation events and prepares them to recite those events in their own evangelism. So it presents the, the life of Christ and what he did for, to us and then it empowers us, gives us the material that we need recite those same events as we tell others about the glorious good news the same bare bones narrative sequence also throws into prominence the structural divide of Caesarea Philippi this incident is the hinge on which the gospel turns so what I'm referring to here is what happened up near Caesarea Philippi when Peter made this confession. We, we talked about this last time. Of course, the, the Catholics twist that to, be, to mean that Peter was the first pope, but that's not what it's about. It's about Peter coming to this realization that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the son of the living God. And that's the hinge on which this gospel turns. The material in the first part of the book, 1-1 through 826, with the stress on Jesus' miracles, leads up to Peter's divinely given insight into the true nature of the man, Jesus of Nazareth. But immediately after the confession, confession and dominating the remainder of the gospel, is the focus on the suffering and death of Jesus. So that's what I mean when I say it's it's the hinge on which the book turns. So, up to that point, it's all about the, the power of Jesus in performing miracles and casting out demons. And then after that, it becomes a story about Jesus going to Jerusalem and his suffering and death that he would face there. And then, of course, ultimately, his resurrection. This combination of of emphases reveals a a major Christological purpose of Mark's. Jesus is the suffering son of God and can truly be understood only in terms of the suffering. Another central theme in Mark is discipleship. Mark presents the disciples as both both privileged and perplexed. Many times, uh, as we read the gospel of Mark and the other gospels, uh, the the 12 disciples don't come out in such a good light, do they? Uh, They seem to be salvation thick headed It, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't always present them in a good light, and and that's one of the things that's striking about all of the Scripture is that, uh, as it has been said, the Bible is hard on its heroes. It um, presents the, the people who followed God. The people that served God, in in a way that doesn't just show us the them always being victorious and righteous and wonderful it also tells us about their shortcomings and their failings. perhaps in both these ways they are models for the disciples of mark's day and for ours privileged to to belong to the kingdom yet perplexed about the apparent reverses suffered by that kingdom when christians suffer Mark wants to contrast situation of the 12 seeking to follow Jesus before the cross and the resurrection with that of Christian disciples at his time of writing. The latter followed Jesus with the help of the powers of the new age of salvation that has dawned, And we are so <clears throat> thankful for that today that we don't just have to depend on our own strength and our own abilities that we have received the holy spirit that god has opened our hearts and our minds to the precious truths that he's made available to us and he's empowered us to follow him and he holds us in his grip and that is the conclusion of the Book of mark i'll close with a word of prayer Father, once again, we come to you in, in thankfulness and gratitude for the important message that is contained in the gospel of Mark, the message of immediacy, the message of quickly moving, the message that we need to respond to and we have responded to. Please help us to, to take this message to the world around us a world that is in need of your saving power we thank you we give you praise in the name of jesus christ amen